It is never too early to turn back. That's the message from police after two trampers lost on Ruapehu had a slow, painful walk off the mountain. 50 search and rescue volunteers are looking for two men missing in the Kaimanawa Forest in the central North Island. Search and rescue staff in Wanaka have found the body of a 23-year-old German tramper who went missing in Mount Aspiring National Park. Now, an Australian climber is still missing at Mount Aspiring National Park near Wanaka despite rescue teams searching for him through the night. They are familiar stories. Climbers, trampers and kayakers missing in our treacherous wilderness. Often it ends in tragedy. But not always. The couple lost for hours on Mount Ruapehu last week got off safely. Helped down by a volunteer rescue team on Monday. But it took 11 volunteers searching amongst alpine cliffs in the dark where streams had become raging torrents to find the couple. For them, they were already soaked through um, and very fatigued. So getting them out was uh, rather arduous. Our rescuers had to pretty much guide every footstep for them. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, they're called the good bastards who get out of a warm bed on a cold night to go in search of perfect strangers. They do it for nothing, but their numbers are shrinking. We look at the work of these volunteers that are part of the Landsar Network, who work with the police on hundreds of missions every year. We're trying not to put our lives on the line. I guess that's the key to it. We're trying to save other lives, but quite often you're putting your life on hold to go and do it. Roy Bailey is Wanaka Search and Rescue's Canyon Swiftwater Team Coordinator, but that's just one of his roles. He's been part of some big operations. One of his most memorable is the rescue of a young adventurer 24 hours overdue from a tramping and pack rafting trip in Mount Aspiring National Park. We were the first team in to go and look for him and... For me, I guess it was memorable because it was all of our training, like we were managed to track the guy, you know, up the young, over the pass, and we tracked him sort of partway into the Siberia Valley on the other side, and then we we lost track. So we knew that he was back a little bit. We actually managed to find this guy who was just totally bluffed out and stuck. So he was stuck on a bluff? Yeah, he'd... He'd actually got into his pack raft way too soon above a steep gorge in the river and got went into that, capsized and climbed up out of the bank and got stuck up the bank in the bush. And did he set off um, a beacon? No, yeah, there was no no beacon. We just it was just so we didn't actually know where he was, but we were able to use our skills to because you're looking you're starting off looking in a massive area. How big would the area be? It's a huge chunk of Mount Aspiring National Park. Yeah. And then, you know, we're just using the skills that we've actually learned to narrow that down and keep narrowing it down until you find it. But what what are those skills? What what do you mean? Well, so like like tracking, so clue processing, looking at like going follow basically trying to follow his trail, seeing if there's signs of him in the huts. We had managed to track him over the top of the pass from the helicopter looking at footprints in the snow, you know. And then tracking skills in the bush, like looking for bootprints and where he'd been and until you don't find them any longer. And then you know that he's you know, it's just back a little bit. And how long did it take you to find him? 
We found them that first day. But you were out there for several hours. Yeah, yeah so we would have gone in at first light and found them in the after, middle of the afternoon at some, some point. Well, that, what an amazing story. Yeah, I mean, it's like I say, when you join up the SAR, you get part of it. You know, you learn all these extra skills and training. Another that Roy will never forget is the recovery of a friend, Jeremy Norbury, who drowned while kayaking with a group on the Turnbull River, South Westland, last February. So when we got there, he was still trapped under the water. Yeah, we, we, we went on the next day. And it was a pretty dangerous operation. Yeah, it was. I mean, there was, it was a dangerous, well, fairly steep white water section that he was stuck in. And, you know, you do all that you can to minimise the risk. And you know, that lot of what we train in is looking after ourselves, trying to you know, make things as safe as possible. And saying that, you can never alleviate the risk. Most of the time, you know, we're dealing with helicopters, we're, de- we're dealing with hazardous terrain environment, and, you know, rivers especially uh, a hazardous environment. We also, on that operation, we also had to get the police, some of the police dive squad in there to, to help us with that. It's because it's a comp- pretty complicated site to access and you need that extra mm. expertise? They came in to assist us and also to do the scene examination and make sure, you know, cover our backs but do the police side of it because obviously someone's died so there's an investigation. It's treacherous. Can you describe yeah, it, it? Can you describe what you're, you're confronted with? And with Jeremy's one in particular, we knew exactly where he was or where he was supposed to be. Um, which is not always the case. Sometimes we have to search the whole river corridor. And Roy, you know, are you? How have you got there? Are you on foot, or have you has have you been taken in by helicopter? Most of the time, we're taken in by helicopter. Either dropped off, you know, either they can land with us, or we um, sort of hover unloading onto onto. A big rock or something, or we're going in on the strops on the rope underneath the chopper. I mean, even that itself, especially if there's terrible weather, is pretty dangerous. Yeah, like most of our operations involve a helicopter, and you know, that's one of the more dangerous parts of what we do dealing with you know, operating in and around, and we're not using the helicopters, you know, in the way that most people. Would you know, obviously, flying in bad weather or into confined spaces or on steep ground. So, you know, we train, we train for that. When you're doing so, you're taking your personal skills. So, you would, we're taking our whitewater skills and river skills in with us, but then there's a lot of training to actually be, be deployable as a SAR person. You know, the searching skills communication skills, rescue skills, looking after yourself. You know, it's all, so that training comes once you're part of SAR. It's a lot to ask of people, especially when they're volunteers. Yeah, it is. I mean, why do you do it? Do you, do you love it? You can't love it all the time. Yeah. 
one thing I always say about it is that everybody involved, everyone who's a volunteer for SAR, is doing it for one reason, and that's to help other people. Like they're not doing it for them to help themselves. There are advantages to being part of SAR, you know, with the training, but pretty much you're there to help strangers in their hour of need, really, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool, but pretty costly. And while the entire search and rescue sector gets tens of millions of dollars in government funding, these 60-odd volunteer groups survive on donations. We'll hear more about that shortly, but let's get back to that rescue last week on Mount Ruapehu and the challenges the rescue team faced. Here's Constable Mark Bolton talking to the details Davina Zimmer. At the start of an operation, we, as far as police go, if we're running the operation, um, we will start trying to gather information such as who they are, how many people we might be looking for, um, and build a picture on who they are, what their skills, knowledge and experience is, and how prepared are they um, for the conditions, basically. Mm. And in this case, wasn't very well prepared, as I'm understanding, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. correct. They, they did have a pack with them um, with a few extra clothes, but that actually was just a, a weight on their back mm. because they didn't have the gear inside in a waterproof bag or a dry bag, you might say. Um, they didn't have a cover over their bag, so that gear was now just soaked and hopeless. Yeah, and so obviously when you have those cases where you establish that the people that are out there needing to be rescued are in quite a vulnerable position, there is that element of urgency, right? And so how do you then kind of manage the speed of, you know, trying to get in there as soon as possible with the safety of the volunteers? Because obviously you don't just want to go and throw a whole bunch of volunteers in and put them in more danger. Yep, we mount a response on the information that we have. In this case, we're located them down near the Wairere water catchment, which would have been a torrent just due to uh, the poor weather we'd had. So we didn't want them going through there. We had to work out how to get our rescuers up to them in the safest possible way, which on this occasion was a walk up from basically down where the chateau was, up the ridge um, to try and get them. Uh, but we talk with our volunteers about where we're putting them before we send them there, and we discuss amongst ourselves safety and the very skilled people that um, live in the area, work in the area, and we can come up with a, a good, safe plan. Once we're happy with that, uh, they are tasked, and off they go. Mm. Yeah. What was the riskiest part of this mission this time? We were worried that our missing parties were going to keep moving around and obviously lots of hazards. There's no shelter up there. They were already sucked through and very fatigued. So we had that, although the, the night ended up quite nice due to them being um, already soaked and cold. They weren't going to warm up up there. So um, we didn't want to leave it any longer than we had to. And obviously there are risks in the dark with falls and um, and water. Hmm. And how lucky do you think these guys were? I mean, it sounds like the 111 call was just, yeah, a stroke of good luck. Yeah, reception up there is very patchy. So 
So they were lucky to get that call out to us. They didn't have their intentions left with anybody. So, for example, um, if you to go on a walk like that, you might tell a friend or a family member and say, hey, look, we expect to be um, out and we'll give you a call about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, it was now 7.40 at night and no one had called us because they didn't know. No one knew where they were up there. So... Luckily, they did get the call out to us, and we had something to work with, yeah. How many volunteers were involved in this mission this time? In this mission, we had 11 volunteers up on the mountain, um, and then back at the, with the incident management team, there were two police officers and a volunteer. And how does that work? You just send out, send out a text and see who responds? Yes. Yes, we have a WhatsApp group and an e-text group, so we're able to send a message out and see who's available. All available reply to us, and then we're able to meet and deploy them. No rescue story is the same, but they often happen in the same places, like the Tongariro Crossing, where walkers by the hundreds take to the trails every day in the high season. Turangi SAR Chair Steve Signal says the sheer numbers led to a rethink by rescuers. This is a, an initiative that Turangi started about six years ago, where every Easter we were ending up deploying teams up onto the, the Tongariro Crossing. Um, over that Easter period is one of the biggest, um, busiest weekends of the whole year. And we were constantly getting called out 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night to go and rescue people off the crossing. So we started, we decided to start a, a preemptive sweep where we went up from either end of the, the crossing and actually started to do a sweep late in the afternoon and push everybody across and safely off the hill, um, getting the stragglers across sort of just after dark. And we were finding with that, doing that each day of the Easter um, period, we weren't ending up with any call-outs. And being up there at the time, we were able to deal with all the bumps, scrapes, bruises, falls, trips, at the time rather than heading up there late into the evening to deal with it. So it's worked out really, really well. Um, As the initiative has sort of um, progressed, it now involves the whole Central North Island Alliance. Um, So we have groups coming in from Whanganui, um, Taihepi, Ruapehu, Raro, Taupo, Um, and they all volunteer teams on various days to actively sweep across the hill and and assist us to um, help those people across. We have various first aid points set up across there. We have one of our guys set up at the bush line with a rucksack full of head torches to to get those late stragglers across that have used their mobile phone all the way across the crossing and by the time they get to the bush line, they thought they'd rely on their torch on the phone to get down to that, but they normally find out that their phone's dead. So we have all these sort of things set up to get everybody safely across. How many people would be involved in that? Uh, volunteers, we're looking at three teams a day, so there'd be at least almost with our with our carriers and transport guys, we're probably looking at about 20 people a day. And then trampers-wise, we're probably looking at anywhere from 
a thousand to two and a half thousand a day across the crossing. If it's a fine day, yeah, it can be bumper to bumper. <laughs> um, and how many people would you treat, do you think, on a daily basis? We can maybe do half a dozen to a dozen people a day with various twists and sprains and scrapes and face plants. We've also had a number of full-on rescues up there where we've had dislocated knees or we've had incidents to get the helicopter in and, and kids back people off. And the advantage is that we're already up there, we're already dealing with it, we've already come across it and it's us that call the helicopters in. So it makes it so much faster to, to deal with that incident while we're up there. So, Steve, what do you think is the biggest challenge that Lansar as an organisation faces right now? As an organisation, I'm not so sure. As a group, I think it's always that retention of members, always recruiting, always trying to find people within within our local community. And I think it's hard for the smaller groups to be able to, you know, maintain those numbers and recruitment. The bigger, you know, groups like Auckland, Wellington, those sorts of areas, they have no problem with their recruitment and, and it's got to be a a separate undertaking altogether because there's so many people that wish to apply. But it's, yeah, it's a different story with the smaller groups. How do you address that? You've just got to be out there in the community and you've got to keep that interest in the, you know, the Landsar logo bouncing around town so people know who we are, they know what we do. We had an undertaking not so long ago where a couple of local pig hunters, they lost their dogs down into a massive canyon out the back of some forestry. And they approached us to see whether we would be prepared to go in and rescue their dogs. Well, generally, that's not normally an undertaking that we would do. But with these guys, if we hadn't gone in and rescued the dogs, I think they would have had a a go of rescuing them themselves. And sooner or later, we probably would have been in there to rescue them. So we made the decision that we were going to get in there and support the local community. And so we went in and set up ropes and had a Kenyan team go in and, and rescue the dogs. Um, well, that put us in a massive standing within the community once they all heard what we'd done and how we'd helped the guys out. And that gave us a lot of kudos within the local community. So, you know, little things like that go a long way. What about money, though? With any group, I think money is always an issue where, you know, we're always fundraising Equipment is so expensive. To kit one rescuer out with wet weathers, rucksack, water, filters, torches, tent, sleeping bag, and all that sort of thing, you're looking at $7,000 per person. It's a massive fundraising undertaking that we've got to do. Can the organisation continue under this current model? I mean, I have some statistics here which says that in the search and rescue sector, 6% full-time, 5% are part-time paid, 89% are volunteers. Yep. I know there's something like probably 3,500 volunteers throughout the country. And is that enough? I think at the moment it is. If we were to start to get used more by various um, city councils in regards to more of the civil defence side of things, then I think we may struggle, you know, maintaining our numbers. Or if we had a number of bigger searches like we used to have, I think we may struggle. But with people carrying um, mapping software on their phones and more people carrying PLBs, 
we're doing more sort of rescues than we are big multi-day searches now. And is that a good thing? I think it is, yeah, because people are able to help themselves a lot more. A lot of them are are able now to self-rescue and work their way back out just with the mapping software that they've got. What do you see as the biggest challenges for SAR? Two things, keeping pace with growth in the sector and people come to New Zealand to have an adventurous holiday. So if the demand keeps going up, you're putting more pressure on volunteers. So keeping up with that demand, but also keeping up with advances in technology. I'm a little concerned they're advertising nationwide cellular coverage. I can see that being an issue in that people are going to maybe not take a locator beacon thinking that their phone is going to do the job. Basically, your phone's never going to replace a locator beacon. You know, your phone, for a start, is way more fragile. If you, you can drop it or get it wet, it's going to stop working. It's also got a very limited battery life, whereas a beacon, pretty rugged little devices. So, yeah, I see maybe a challenge coming up and a whole swing in the way that operations are run with, with that upcoming technology. And you wouldn't be expected to update your own equipment, would you, with with your funds? Would, would that, that kind of thing be...? No, we... So in Wanaka SAR, we possibly operate a bit different to a lot of the SAR groups around the country. Our philosophy is that our volunteers should be able to walk in off the street or you know straight off the beach in their togs and be able to fully equip to deploy for 24 hours from our stores. All of that gear is gear that we've raised funds for ourselves to buy. And finally, two simple messages to those setting out on an adventure. One, always take an emergency locator beacon. Two, check the weather. There's been a storm coming for like a week. Every now you can see this big storm coming. And then people need rescue you know, in the middle of the storm. And you're like, did you not look at the forecast before you went? That's probably the thing that gets me the most. So nothing's changed there, really? No, nothing's changed. I think, um, interestingly, I think the stats on people getting rescued, it's, it's like a 50-50 mix of international visitors and New Zealanders. Shit can hit the fan at any time but you just got to try and lessen your odds of that or being able to deal with it, don't you? The detail is supported by RNZ and NZ On Air. This episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Alexia Russell and Davina Zimmer. Thanks to Steve Signal, Mark Bolton and Roy Bailey. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Ka kite.